I'm Lisa Stone, and you're listening to Parenting Aces. Welcome to Season 10 of the Parenting Aces Podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Stone, and we are thrilled to be part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. This week, we are going to be talking with coach extraordinaire, Paul Anacone. I'm so thrilled to have him. I'm trying not to fangirl too badly, but it's pretty exciting to get him on the podcast. And we're going to be focusing on his latest work with the USTA SoCal section and working with juniors here in Southern California. So I'm very, very excited to bring him and his experience and wisdom to all of you at Parenting Aces. Before I bring Paul on screen, I want to just remind you, if you haven't become a premium member of Parenting Aces yet, we'd love to have you join us. We'd also love to have you shop on our little shopping link on our website and get some of our new merch. Also, if you are listening to this on one of the podcast apps and would like to see the video version, come on over to ParentingAces.com. We've got the video there. You can also find it on our YouTube channel and all the show notes will be at ParentingAces.com as well. That said, I am thrilled to introduce Paul Anacone. I'm going to just add Paul to the shot here. Paul, welcome to Parenting Aces. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Lisa, thank you so much. I know you've uh, juggled your schedule to deal with my chaotic one, so I really appreciate it. Thanks for your, <laughs> thanks for your patience. Absolutely. Really Absolutely. So, I mean, you have this story experience in tennis, growing up in the sport, playing at the professional level, coaching some of the top players in the game. And now you've kind of shifted gears and are working with juniors again. What's that been like for you? You know, it's been really interesting. Look, I, I, every time I wake up, I kind of have to just shake my head a little bit, make sure it's not a dream, right? Because ever since I've been a little kid, I've been able to turn my dream into a living. You know, I, I've made a living out of uh, the game of tennis, which I love passionately in a lot of different areas. And, um, you know, along with coaching, um, now currently working at the Tennis Channel and also working with Taylor Fritz, um, Southern Cowboy, who, who uh, has had great people around him. David Nankin really does all the hard work. And then I swoop in and try to take the glory <laughs> when things go well. Um, but we have a really good team around Taylor. And then um, at the beginning of this year, I've been fortunate enough to really start to get um, – my feet wet and get my hands into some of the stuff that's going on with the SoCal junior environment. And it's been a great education. Um, there's some terrific people involved. I really tried to listen uh, and learn a lot um, uh, from Scott Lipsky, who's working for SoCal as head of the player development and also Trevor Croneman have been really helpful and most importantly, patient with me. So um, kind of pointing me in directions that, uh, I can kind of be a sponge. And that's really what it's been all about right now. The first four or five months of the year is to try to be a sponge and learn as much as I can about the kind of inner operations, not only of how SoCal does it, but really just about um, all, all the different processes within junior tennis and understanding some of the challenges, some of the opportunities, and perhaps using some of the experience that I have to alleviate or add value to areas that, that might be a little bit diminished. But look, it's, it, it's not, uh, we, we are not curing cancer, it's tennis. Uh, um, it, it's a great game and, and there are some wonderful players out here. And most importantly, let's think about SoCal's history. I mean, it's been the preeminent section um, in the United States ever since I've been a little kid. I grew up in Eastern Tennis Association. I used to be so annoyed when I had to play all the SoCal people that got to play outside all year. I couldn't figure out how to get enough tennis in. So, so SoCal's had a great tradition, and, and I think it's really important to try to figure out ways to just build on what already is a great tradition and a good foundation. 
Fantastic. And as we're recording this, USC is actually on court at the NCAA National D1 Championships in Lake Nona. And uh, yeah, I've got I've got another window open following that. All right. Match, how are they doing? But, how are they doing? Um, you can- here, I'll pull up the scores really right. quickly. So um, they're down. They lost the doubles point to Texas. Right. And Texas okay. won the NCAAs two years ago, yep. which was the last yep. time we had it. So um, right now it looks like USC, well, it looks like they've kind of split the first sets for the men. Okay. So, right. um, you know, it ain't over till it's over in college. Exactly. Tennis. Exactly. Before we dig into your current work, I would love for you to talk a little bit about how you got started playing tennis because you have a brother that plays as well. And mm-hmm. uh, so were you just born into a tennis family or how did that happen? Well, it's an it's it's a kind of a pretty logistically simple story. My parents were school teachers. Um, they started really enjoying the game, and they didn't have a lot of extra money when they were younger to get babysitters. So my brother and I used to go to the park with them when they played, and then we started playing tennis at the park. And I kind of got enamored by the game, and my parents kind of let me. Um, start getting involved in junior tennis to play the junior tournaments in the United States. And it just kind of blossomed from there. I I actually moved to Boletari's when I was 13. I was one of Nick's first students before Andre and that whole crew was down Mm -hmm. there. I was down there with um, Jimmy Arias and Kathleen Horvath. And there was a lot of great players, but there was, it was a smaller scale. So I got to spend a lot of my formative years, um, kind of 13 to 17 down with Nick and, and his academy. And and to be honest, Lisa, I think that's where a lot of my kind of junior development philosophy took root. You know, I, I look mm. back at a lot of the things I learned back there as a child, not only um, about tennis, but about life and responsibility and accountability. And I think it was really valuable. And although the times have changed, uh, there's a lot of commonalities that I think are still really relevant in terms of trying to help kids maximize their potential. And my biggest theme is everyone's not going to be a great tennis player, but everyone can have fun. Everyone can figure out the best ways to get the most out of themselves. And if they want to do that, whatever that most is to me is a success, you know? And and so that, that, that's why I think it's really important to have perspective as we work with the kids and, and, you know, in my kind of micro focus with with player development and high performance, obviously um, the bar set high, but you also have to have perspective. And again, another reason that I feel like I love the game so much is it's a game for a lifetime. Everybody's not going to be Serena or Venus or Roger or Rafa, but you can play forever. You just mentioned USC's match. I mean, how yeah. great is it that kids can play this game and go to college and play it? And, and you know, I think that's one of the pathways that we need to continue to try to focus on, particularly here in the U.S., because the way things are going, it's getting harder and harder to make a living at it. And mm-hmm. look, I, I put uh, two kids through college, uh, two and a half kids through college. And so for me, what better way to have a college experience than to get a great education and to be able to play tennis? So there's just so many areas that are that are really really important that can be kind of tapped into. But back to the original question, my parents took us to the park, put rackets in our hands, and I was like, "Gosh, I like this. Let's see where this goes." I love it, and you know, just gives credence to the importance of our public park system and its connection to tennis. And there's a lot of history in public parks related to tennis. I mean going back, you know, decades and decades and decades, well before even you and I were born, which that's already many decades, but, um, (laughs) but we've really got to kind of engage our public park system better, I think, to continue to grow the game. And I know USTA is committed to doing that. And, and I'm excited to see some more grassroots efforts, especially now with COVID kind of we're, we're, it, it seems like we're on the backside of COVID. I, you know, hopefully, but yeah, um, yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm, well, I, I hope so too. And, and look, you hit the nail on the head, right? The public park system, and that's where the inner workings of the USTA has always been so interesting to me, mm-hmm. just because you know the measure of what they want to do is get rackets in hands and right. keep rackets in hands and grow the game. And the interesting kind of dialogue between how that intertwines with player development has always been, for me, 
um, a complex conversation. Um, I ran player development for the USTA years ago. I was, I've also been fortunate enough to work for two other federations. I worked for the Lawn Tennis Association in England for four and a half years and also for Tennis Australia for about five. So I've been involved involved in what they call, what I categorize as institutionalized tennis hmm. um, because it is through through a structure like that. And, and it's very different, but I think you have to figure out how to marry that. You have to figure out how to marry um, kind of community tennis and grassroots and player development because they're two very different things. And as you know, as well as I do, there's been a lot of debate about what should be done or shouldn't. And I don't feel like either either area is wrong. I think they're two different views, but I think that the best way to make the game grow is to figure out how to marry them, to figure out how mm-hmm. to not only get rackets in hands, but keep them in hands. And, yeah. and I thought actually, I don't know how you felt Lisa, but I actually thought ironically, once we started working through COVID, tennis is a pretty good game for this time, you know, for this yeah. time we live in, right? And yeah. and so if we can figure out and look, the numbers show it last year how much uh, of an increase there was um, in participation in tennis. I believe was it up twenty percent nationally or I between knew. twenty? Yeah, yeah. I, I got some of the analytics a couple months ago, and I was like, okay, now that we have some rackets in hand, let's try to deal with that uh, never-ending question: How do we keep them in hand? Exactly. Right. Exactly. And some of that, I think, was, you know, gyms were closed and and other forms of exercise weren't accessible because of COVID. And so tennis was accessible and and we got a lot of new players out there um, just looking for a way to stay physically active, which was awesome. And as you said, now the challenge is how do we capitalize on that and keep them playing, get them engaged in leagues and all of those things. And those rec players are the parents of the future junior players and and the junior players today are the future parents of the next generation. So it's a cycle that we've got to figure out how to, how to capitalize on for sure. Yeah. And, and look, there's, it's always been a never ending debate, right? I I think, you know, growing up here in the U S with the prominent football and basketball and baseball Mm -hmm. And the accessibility of that through schools when kids are younger makes makes it very challenging, right? Yeah. And I re- I lived it as a kid. I played basketball and soccer as, as a child, and and I remember the allure to have a team. And I remember as a child, it was nice to have a team and teammates and go to practices and so on and so forth. And that's kind of part of how my philosophy of player development evolved, kind of evolved as well, because I feel like in an individual sport, when you're with kids. Um, one of the most important things is to get those kids together and, and mm. to let them practice together, let them train together, let them get in really healthy uh, competitive environments, healthy competitive environments where they push each other. They learn to, to they learn, learn to win. They turn, learn to lose. They learn to deal with adversity, all the stuff that makes us hopefully healthy functioning adults. So mm. as an individual athlete, I, I've always felt like that's a little bit of a challenge and, and because a lot of the kids, and I, I lived it and saw it, and I still see it some this, to this uh, to this day, where kids and parents and, and sometimes coaching teams get their player off in isolation out of yeah. protection. They don't want little Johnny to know what little Jimmy does well and doesn't do so well, and we don't want Sally to know what Jane does well, and, and people get very protective when I think that is part of the beauty of the sport and part of the beauty of the evolution is let the kids push each other happily and in a healthy way and let them learn to win and lose, let them understand it's okay to lose and it's okay to win. And, and that's just part of the process. So getting those groups together philosophically Mm -hmm. for me has always been kind of really um, the most prominent point of what I think should happen in player development is how do we get the kids together as often as possible so that they can be around each other and, and yeah. so that they can push each other in a healthy way. And I think that that um, we miss that kind of in these individual sports. For sure. And I know Scott Lipsky has been committed to that, that same philosophy, you know, with his work in USTA SoCal at, at the highest level of junior tennis. But I think where some of the challenge comes in and, and maybe where some of the cracks come into that is at the mid-level and entry level of the sport. You know, we we have all these camps and, and these player development functions for our 
our most elite players, mm -hmm. but sometimes those kids that are going to go on to be strong collegiate players, strong adult players in the future, you know, they don't oftentimes have those same opportunities to come together with peers from around the section or even around the country. Mm -hmm. No, and you're exactly right. And I think that's where there, there, there's been cracks, not only here, but all across the country. In For terms sure. Of how do we, how do we do that? Right. And, you know, what I find really interesting is, you know, you look at a section like, um, uh, like Southern and you yeah. look at Alta and you look at what they've done yeah. with their adult leagues. Right. So, so when you see a model like that, that isn't about people winning Wimbledon. That's about yeah happy, healthy people out complaining and uh, playing and playing different teams. And, and I think that model should be looked at and tried to figure out actually how to emulate, not just in high performance, but in middle performance and in right. just beginning tennis as well. Because if you can do that, I think when you get the kids together and you get them in teams playing against each other um, and they get in that environment, it has, it really has a huge benefit. I, I've, I've spent a bunch of time talking to Trevor Cronin about this, uh, a couple months ago, you know, and I've just tried to talk to a lot of people about their philosophies of what works and what doesn't. And Trevor's a really big believer in Team SoCal, mm -hmm. you know, and, and at the national level, uh, back in the day, that's kind of what Patrick McEnroe did with Jose Garris and their team before Patrick left was Team USA. And now mm -hmm. they're pushing that. So that model of Team SoCal, where there are groups and gatherings and coaching education and parental education and strength and conditioning education, nutrition, all these different things where the players and their parents and their teams can come. And it's for us, us as a section mm. and not just the top 2% but to figure out programmatically how you do that and you spread the wealth of information, so to speak, throughout the different layers of the development. And, and, and kind of the way I look at it, Lisa, it's, it's very like, um, it's really similar to kind of my overall philosophy on player development. I, I did a report for Craig Tiley, uh, Tennis Australia years mm -hmm. ago about player development. And my first question was define what you see as player development. And he goes, what do you mean? And I said, if you think player development is about spending whatever it is, 15 or $20 million to have the next Leighton Hewitt or, or Sam Stozer or now Ash Barty or Patrick Rafter, then I don't think you should have player development. And mm. it's the same as that in the States. If you're yeah. going to spend $20 million for the next Serena, 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 they, they are... <laughs> <laughs> they are the exception, not the yes. rule. You know, yes. Andre and Pete and Serena and Andy Roddick and all these great legends that we've had, Tracy Austin and Lindsay out here, you know, they are they are the exception. They're not the rule. I feel player development should be a tool and a program that's set up structurally that at the highest levels is set up it, that it helps more players max talent and at mm -hmm. the highest level, what that means is getting more players ranked in the different layers of professional ranking. It doesn't mean one person in the top 10. It means more people from 1 to 20, more people from 21 to 50, more people from 51 to – you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. and, and, and as you go down and you trickle down into the section, in a perfect world, in the dreamscape that I live in, that's what I would like to see sectionally. It's like let's get more better players in the section – at all the different layers within the section. You know, the I best, great, right? Then yeah. more, you know, then as you go to the different tiers, now how do we do that? More playing opportunities, the team SoCal idea um, that, that uh, Trevor uh, has talked a bunch to me about and Scott and I have kicked it around where everyone feels like it's, it's not them, us, it's mm. us, us. Right. You know, it's us, us. And, and, and there's a yes. unique opportunity right now because sure. USTA you know, had because of COVID canceled all of the junior team events for this year. Right. And so it's a great time to kind of rethink what does it mean to have team events for junior tennis and at all the different levels, because we've now got this new USTA junior structure. So let's, you know, put these programs into place at each step of the 
process, not just for the top level kids and not just for the entry level kids, but right. kind of that, that middle class thing sure. seems to get left out a lot. And yeah, um, and, and I, I agree. And you're, you're right. And I think that's something you really have to look at because if you look at um, kind of the evolution, that's kind of where you start to lose a lot of the retention of players too, right. because it becomes harder to play more easily you know it gets more complicated it gets more there's more travel there's less tournaments it's more expensive it's you know so some of these concepts of team tennis and ways to do that can i think be a buffer for that which which could be really good and i think it could really help kind of um get more kids to feel a part of something look i i've been i've been really lucky the last kind of two months or so i've been um, I go out to Carson a lot at mm -hmm. to the national facility and because um, Taylor's there training and I'm there with him. But I've also got now I'm spending a lot of time um, with Maureen Diaz, who works with a lot of the younger SoCal girls. Yeah. Uh, Eric Cortland's out there. David Nankin's working with a bunch of the SoCal boys. And I see like this morning I was there and there were nine of these girls that were 12 to 14 years old. And I watched Maureen work with these girls and I was like, this is this should be normal at every yeah. just because just because they're really good that's great but it doesn't it doesn't they don't have to be really good get yeah. get the same nine girls in the middle kind of rung right. of player development get them in this kind of environment you know so it's yeah. you know philosophically it sounds easy i know logistically it's very challenging but but i think it's a concept that's worth discussing and worth trying to to, to dig into to see if there are ways to make it more practically applicable because at the end of the day, if we do want more great players, I'm a big believer in we need more players, period. I For do sure. think that there's a correlation. And, yeah. and so that circles back to my whole kind of uh, marriage between community tennis um, and player development. When you see, I never understood how if community tennis or grassroots tennis is dropping you know, in Australia, when I was doing this re review, it was dropping like 16% every year for like wow. five years. And so if, you, if, if, if community tennis and players are dropping, why do you think we should have more better players if less <laughs> people are playing? You know, and it, I don't know that it's definitely tied, but just logically speaking, I would think if the talent pool or the people playing are deeper and there's more people playing, more likely you're going to have more better players and even more importantly, we're going to have more players, which is great, you know. Yeah. So it's one of those unanswerable things, but I think it's it's worthy of a lot of conversation. Um, and I think a lot of people have been and are thinking about it. Um, but like I said from the beginning, one of the most impressive things about SoCal is this section has always kind of been the gold standard for the mm -hmm. country in terms of how good the players are, how much depth there is. A lot of it's the weather. One of the things I think, too, and that I've talked to Scott about a lot and that we're trying to implement and I've talked to Trevor about is this six section has some of the best coaches in the country. Yes. And, and, you know, there are people that are amazing coaches from developmental all the way all the way to the top tier of competitive play. And, and so that's historically been like that. So I believe for a section and part of my philosophy about helping is. I don't, I don't want to coach all the 13 year olds. I, that's not what I want to do. Mm -hmm. I want to help the coaches that coach them. I want to come and see how we can be resourceful and supplement, supplementary in terms of the needs that they have and so on and so forth. But we have all these great coaches. How do we get all of us to work together? So Scott and I have had a couple of calls already where we've gotten you know, a group of coaches on the call and um, spend an hour just talking shop. And I want to make that more regular. I want to make it like, what do you guys see? What's been working? What do you ladies have over here that's been working? What's been going well? Where are the challenges philosophically, strategically, so that we get all these great resources together to chat so that we can be on the same page. And then you have a wealth of information, I think, to really spread uh, nice and smoothly across the playing field. Well, and it's interesting. I just uh, recorded a podcast with two coaches from Australia who work in the red, orange, green space, and they've developed a program not through Tennis Australia, but through collaboration of coaches. Exactly what you're talking about, Paul. And it's been so successful that Tennis Australia then adopted it. 
But it started with the coaches coming together and talking about where they saw the needs and the shortcomings and and discussing different coaching philosophies and approaches to competition and growing the sport and all of those exactly what you're saying. Mm -hmm. And I I said to them, gosh, I, I really hope coaches in the US are listening to this because, you know, I think this is something that's been missing here is coaches coming together to discuss what the needs are and talking about what's working in their communities and how do we build on that and grow the game that way rather than from the top down. So right. I, I love that you're saying this and it's, it's so interesting to me to, you know, I'm, I'm talking to coaches, you know, half a world away and then I'm talking to you right here and, and the messages are very similar. You know, yes, it's, look, it's, it's tennis is not rocket science, right? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I mean, all the analytics and all the metrics and all the stuff that we can use now in terms of analyzing what's going on and critique that I use on Tennis Channel to dissect everything. That's all wonderful, and it gives you some clarity. But I think there are very there's some very simple common threads about accessibility, about a community feeling where kids can come together very comfortably, very easily. Um, and and make a kind of a transition into an environment that that's really healthy that's not that complicated it, right. it, it isn't it might be complicated to figure out how to get the masses to all come together and and, and make it all work but i i don't think it's a very complicated concept um i think the concept is a good one and i think it's one of the easiest ways to help kids keep rackets in their hands because they'll they'll feel part of something. You know, I actually feel that the isolation, like I said a little while ago, the isolation for a child is challenging. You know, if they're not really good at it, it's challenging. And even if they are really good at it, I mean, I'm an old dinosaur, but I look at what these kids go through now in social media and some of the stuff that's written about each other, and it's it's really horrible. It's unhealthy. Mm -hmm. And and so to put yourself out there is very different than it was to put yourself out there even 10, 15 years ago. And so to be out there in isolation by yourself in an individual sport, I think these kids are vulnerable, and that's why having a communal feeling where there's a big group of kids, whether it's by region or neighborhood, however you do, it doesn't matter, mm. but get them together all the time in a safe place where they're all getting better and learning from coaches and learning from each other. And then sure, focus. I, I believe in focusing on, on the top as well. I don't think you have to do either in isolation, but I do believe it's a bicycle chain. Mm. And if one of the links is broken, it's not going to work. That's kind I of how that I analogy. look at it. You yeah. know, I mean, if the best link at the top is great, but there's a link over here that's broken, it's not going to keep going around. It's yeah. not going to work. So I, I believe that there's a tie-in. And um, I know there's a lot more smarter people than me that have tried to figure out how to do it for a long time. But I do think it could be a catalyst to a kind of growth and explosion and really, you know, an environment that gets kids feeling really safe to do it all the time and wanting to be in their peer groups and yeah. wanting to be down at the local club where there's 30 kids Monday, Wednesday and Friday afternoon playing, you know, yeah. and there's 50 kids on the weekend. And, you know, those days to me are days that I, I remember so fondly. I mean, I loved being, on the courts with all of my, and the, the Boletarius back then, it was all the best kids in the country. You know, we had 40 kids there and there were probably, in my age group, there were probably within three years of me, there were probably 15 people ranked in the top 20 of the country. Wow. And so every day we're playing, practicing with each other. Some days I win, some days I lose. We play the same tournaments on the weekends. We go to the movies together. You know, it's like, it, it becomes a safe, healthy haven of development, you know? Right. And, and I think learning to deal with that, whether it's top, top tier people that are going to go to college scholarships and play on the tour or kids that are just evolving and maturing. I think there's a great sense of responsibility, accountability, and maturation that goes with managing that environment. So I just think it's a good thing if it's done well, in the right way. And I had a similar experience, but at a much lower level tennis wise, but 
I grew up at Piermont Oaks Tennis Club in Shreveport, Louisiana, and riding my bike every day after school. Uh-huh. Couldn't wait to get there and hang out with my friends. And during the summers, we would play tennis for a few hours, then we go swim, have lunch, then we go play some more tennis. So same idea, you know, it's not just for the top, top level of player. As you said, this can happen at every level of the game where you bring kids together and have that healthy environment for them to train and compete and just hang out and have fun together. Right. Yeah. I, I look, I, I use the term layers all the time and that's how I use it even at player development, because, you know, like I said, if you're doing player development, so you have the next Serena, I don't want that job. If you're doing the player development so that you have all these different layers, more players sign me up. That's great. Yeah. And that that model, why can't that model just trickle down to sectional level within the sections? And why can't that, you know what I mean? Why can't yeah. it just work across the board to try to get more better players, but more importantly, more players? Right. And, and, and then they can, you know, we'll, we can marry the two as they progress. But that to me is a nice equation to have. I love it. We're talking with Paul Anacone, and I, he's sharing his massive wisdom about tennis and growing the game. Got to tell my kids that, Lisa. You I will. Please tell my kids. Okay. Okay. Well, okay. Hey, Paul's kids, <laughs> brilliant man. You are very lucky go. that he's your dad. Okay. There we go. All right. That's my PSA for the day. Um, <laughs> so I want to shift a little bit, Paul, and talk about the parents' role in junior tennis. You're a parent. Do your kids play? Um, they play recreationally. My son actually played. He went back and forth with wanting. My oldest son wanted to play mm-hmm. and then got into basketball and ended up getting a partial scholarship to go play basketball cool. and let go of the tennis. But he's a very he's a very good tennis player. My daughter played on a high school team but was never competitive. Um, I, I always felt, um, based on my experiences, that – I want them to have the opportunity to do it. And if they didn't want to do it, I don't mind at all. But if they wanted to pursue it, I wanted to explain to them what that meant. And I probably scared them a little bit just based on my own experience (laughs) of basic total immersion in, you know, the voluntary environment, which for me worked out great, but that's a big sacrifice. And, and so, you know, the parental role for me is one that's really slippery slope. And then as you know, as well as I, there's no magic pill. There's no, just do this and your kid will be a great player and a great person and really healthy. There's no, yeah. it doesn't work like that. So, I mean, when you're, you were saying that, you know, parent education is part of the role of what you're doing with player development now and, you know, really trying to figure this out. What what do parents need, in your opinion, from the junior coaches? Because I can tell you what we need from from my opinion, but I, I'm curious mm-hmm. to hear your take on this and, and well, what you feel the responsibility of the coach is in terms of parental education. Yeah, well, Lisa, I, I hope it evolves into more direct opportunities for myself and Scott and other Southern Cal Uh, people that work here to have involvement with parents in terms of direct uh, education opportunities to deal with people that have been through, look, I've been through it for 50 years and a lot of different levels. I think experience does help, but I don't think it's um, like I said, it's not a magic pill. I've seen some really dysfunctional parents have some great tennis playing children that become great players. I've seen some really what I would categorize as very normal, you know, parents that kids don't really transition very well and struggle in their mm-hmm. in their own life. So there isn't a magic pill, but I do think that there's parameters and the parameters I think are really challenging. And this is another area that I've, I've always felt really is um, a struggle. I, I just never <laughs> felt that the uh, developmental coaches have gotten enough credit, you know, without mm-hmm. the... Robert Landsdorps of the world, I wouldn't have been coaching Pete Sampras when he was 23. Do you know what I mean? You, yeah. These people, they help mold the, the child. They help do it in a way that hopefully um, resonates on and off the tennis court. That's kind of how I was. I was molded a little bit from Voluntary and also my uh, the late, great Mike DePalmer Sr., University of Tennessee college coach that 
was my coach and dear friend who, who passed away last year. The, so much of what they taught me about tennis kind of rolled into life, just about mm-hmm. accepting responsibility, accountability, you know, dotting I's, crossing T's, being mature, you know, just how you deal with the homework assignment, how kids yeah. deal with school, just those normal things. So I think the line of communication needs to be clear. I think it gets dangerous. And from what I've seen from historically, that most of the parents have really good intentions and, and they're really driven yeah. in, a, in the right organically good way. And then when winning and losing comes in and it looks like it, it may hurt or help their child emotionally and, you know, developmentally, then the parents lose their pragmatism. It can Mm. become challenging for them to be the balancing force. And this is what I've always felt. And this is what has always been very clear to me ever since I was a kid at Balateri's and all through coaching Pete and Roger. One of the most amazing things about Pete and Roger is when they win, they win Wimbledon. And I've been there and seen that with them. They don't think they just cured cancer. They won Wimbledon. That's yeah. a really great. I'm really happy. Blah, blah, blah. Let's have a nice dinner celebration. We'll go to the next tournament. When they lose, they don't think the world's coming to an end. Yeah. You know, and, and I think that there's a healthy bat. And, and that doesn't mean you don't care when you lose. And that doesn't mean you don't, you're not ecstatic when you win, but there's a balance. There's, mm. there's, and I think these things have to be taught to kids as they, for lack of a better term, kind of matriculate through the junior ranks because if and the they parents. don't. The yeah, parents that's need what, to learn that too. And it's right. a hard lesson. Right. And I was segueing into, okay, so the kids need to learn it. So how do they learn it? Well, they learn it from their parents. That's where the developmental coaches and the parents have to be in unison. And it's not always easy because the parents are emotionally involved. It's very tough to step back and go, okay, <laughs> let me look at this. I've been there with my kids. Let me yeah. look at this objectively. Well, I'm not going to. That kid just fouled my son. In the basketball yeah. game, get him out of the game. You know, it's very <laughs> difficult to have that balance where you kind of go, okay, that happened. You know, that wasn't great, but what do we do about it? What do we learn from it? How do we go from there? And 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 I think that there's a lot of lessons in terms of um, just experiential conversations to be had. And, and like I said, I think those things. I hope those things can take root down the road as our Southern Cal world becomes less COVID prohibitive so we can do things like this. Yeah. I mean, my idea would be, look, and I, I I started off with this with, I think we need to have coaching education opportunities. We need to have camps where the kids come with their coaches and the coaches, we pick coaches, you know, uh, Angel, you run the morning session and you, you run the session and you, you do the curriculum and we'll all help. In the afternoon, you do Peter Smith, you do the afternoon session, you do the, you know, just have everybody yep. do it as a group. And then afterwards, we sit around with the kids and we have pizza. We talk about the day, we talk about what's happened, what did you learn, you know, and, and then you do the similar things with parents and you can do that while the kids are on the court. You have the right. kids on the court and then you have the parents inside having donuts and coffee and tea and talking to whomever it may be, whether it's me or a sports psychologist or a nutritionist or someone that knows the college pathway, then the parents can come. So these are all, you know, these are all brain, you know, little brainchilds, the children that I'd like to try to figure out ways to implement, because I think if you can get some of it done, there's going to be benefit, you know, there's going to be benefit. And, And I think, you know, with that inherent question about what do we do for the parents? How do we help them? First of all, they have to want to be helped. And and mm-hmm. and just like anything else in life, if you think you know more than you know, that's a problem. Mm-hmm. I mean, everyone that I've been around that's been really successful tends to have really good people around them. And that's one of the reasons why I actually love to coach. I've, I've learned more in the last two and a half months just listening you know, to Maureen Diaz at Carson and, and listen to David Nankin with the younger players going to Scott's clinics that we had at Carson and um, down in Costa Mesa and talking to him, you know, and, and talking to the coaches that are there, Cecil Mamet and the other coaches that are around um, and, and hearing what is worked and why, what hasn't. So you, everyone's got to have a little bit of an open mind mm-hmm. and a little bit of a, we're making a cake here and, 
some of the ingredients aren't exact. We right. have to kind of mold and fix and bend. And and at the end of the day, I just think that there's a really tremendous amount of good, talented people out here that can make a huge impact. Um, and sure. I think the best way to do it is this. It's not, you know, it's not in isolation. The best yeah. way is to get resources together. And I can tell you, I'm from 10 years of doing Parenting Aces and being a parent advocate and a parent educator and a parent supporter, um, parents are hungry for the information. They want it. And, you know, I think uh, anything that the local tennis associations or sections can do to include the parents is going to make for a more positive experience for everybody, for the coaches, for sure, because an educated parent is much less of a pain in the neck to a coach than an uneducated <laughs> yeah. parent. And that's sure. just the reality, right? Yes, life. And, yes, life. Yeah. and the kids are going to have a better experience if their parents are better educated because the parents hopefully aren't going to get so uptight about every little thing and so focused on ratings and rankings and right. who beat whom last weekend right. and, you know, right. where's my kid in the draw and all of those things. So I, it is a win-win and I, I am all about, you know, bringing as much information as possible to the parents because let's face it, we're the ones that write the check and, right. you know, we're yeah. the ones that drive the kids. So um, I think it's important that we all work together. You know, I, I don't need to tell you about that, the player parent coach triangle. It's there, but, yeah, yeah. you know, and, and we're all equally involved in making sure that kid reaches his or her potential, you know, achieves the goals that they set forth for themselves and that we do it in a way that at the end of the day, the kid winds up being a great human being because that's right. really the important right. piece. Yeah. That, that that should be the driving force behind all of it, in my yeah. in my opinion. I mean, because look, the one thing that you know about tennis, no matter how good you are, when you're done, I was a very young man when my whole life changed. I was mm -hmm. 30 years old when I my tennis career was over as a player with herniated discs. That's all I'd known my whole life. Yeah. And I'm still kicking. So I've got a lot of years after 30 to have a life. So you better figure out how to manage things other than your forehand and your backhand, because life's bigger than that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So what's on tap for USTA SoCal? I mean, I, I know they're, you know, Trevor's doing an amazing job and, and I've gotten to know him a little bit better in the last couple months now that tournaments are back on the schedule and I'm getting yeah. to be on site too. Um, and, and I know, you know, bringing you in, bringing Scott in, I mean, these are really big steps in kind of reshaping what's happening in the section. Yeah. I, you know, look, I, I think it's, it's a process and it's a journey. Um, I think a lot of what has to be um, kind of ultimately decided is what adds value and what doesn't. Right. And, and so, you know, for me, my, my, the initiative <clears throat> that I have had at, from day one has been number one to try to be a sponge learn as much as i can um trevor's probably sick of talking to me so scott i'm sure um but i'm trying to understand how things work um try to get some processes put in place where um i can go to as many of these camps as possible i've been to two of the ones that scott's had already one at carson one at costa mesa um, I've been fortunate enough to spend a bunch of time with a bunch of the players out at Carson and talking to some of their parents that are around there. Good. I told you about some of the phone calls that we've had with some of the coaches that are considered, you know, player development coaches mm -hmm. that Scott has put together. So I, unfortunately, I don't, I don't think that there is a, if we do A, B, C, and D, by September 20th, everything is going to, you know what I mean? So, yeah. so at the end of, you know, we're looking at trying to do something at the end of June, Scott's looking at a camp. Then we're looking at something else in the, in the middle of July, I'm sorry, towards the end of July before the nationals and mm -hmm. the girls 16s and 18s are, are out here. So that yep. ought to be fun. Um, and then the sectionals is, is towards the sectionals is coming up in June. So to try to figure out ways to kind of blend and bleed into those events. And then and the other thing is to figure out how to prioritize the needs. So part of what I'm doing is gathering as much information so then I can go to Scott and go, you know, I think it'd be really good if the next camp we had 
uh, an SNC specialist and a nutritionist come in for yeah. that one. And then the other camp to, you know, a month after that, which is for the kids that are a little bit older, let's have someone that's an expert on the college pathway come in and yeah. you know what I mean? So try to figure out the best usages of expertise that add value to the people that are in the section, to the kids and their parents and their coaches. Right. And so right now I feel like it's still, you know, plant being watered a little bit. Um, but I, I think a lot of it, it, you know, the one commonality that I see is everything is pointing towards an immersion or an inclusion and, and, and collab, you know, a collaborative co cooperative effort. That doesn't mean everyone's always going to be happy all the time, but what it means is, like I said, initially, there's a lot of great talented tennis people and tennis minds out here that imagine if we all shared information, if we all <laughs> used what we were good at and we kind of figured ways to grow all the different components to make it much more lucrative so that that plant can really grow. So to me, that that that's the bottom line is how do we do mm -hmm. that? And a lot of it right now, for me, Lisa, is familiarization. You know, I, I drove down to um, Barnes for two or three days of the Easter Bowl, and then I think we so were there at the same time, but we yeah, we were in different yeah, parts okay. of the facility. Yeah. yeah, and then and then for the the SoCal, uh, I took the Iowa State. Yeah. yeah, so so I got to see that, and, and you know, it was it was heartwarming and heartbreaking. It was heartbreaking just because of COVID people, people yeah. couldn't come in, you know, and it was heartwarming to see the kids on the court and see coaches there talking to each other and, and trying to get um, that kind of community going, because I think that that's a healthy community. Like I said, I think yeah. when the coaches are at all the tournaments with the parents and the kids are there, when you, to me, the winning and losing is the secondary part of it. The primary part of it is the collaboration and, and the integration of all of these people together. And I'm not just talking about Johnny and Joey, I'm talking about Johnny and Joey's parents mm -hmm. and the different coaches and the S and C people when they sit down and they talk and they talk and everyone's there kind of sharing knowledge. Um, I think it's an opportunity for people to get better at what they do. And, and, and so when I was down there, I was kind of pretty clear with, you know, Scott and, and well, Trevor was running around I don't even yeah. know how he did it, but God bless him. He did a great, I don't know how he does it, but he did it a great It was amazing. Job. Yes. Yeah. And, and, and um, just kind of going, this is what I saw. Here's, you know, here's what I saw on the court with the players. Here's what I heard talking to some of the coaches. Um, I got to spend some time um, with Ryan Redondo down there who knows a ton about the yeah. history of, of SoCal and California in general tennis. And so I, I just think that, all of these things are seeds that need to be watered right now. And, and at this stage, kind of four and a half months in for me, I don't have enough information to go. If we just do A, B, and C, everything's going to be great. Yeah. But yeah. the thing that I keep coming back to is more integration, more collaboration, more opportunity, better communication, more simplification simplification in terms of what parents need to know need to do for their kids so that mm -hmm. they can pursue whatever it is i mean i all due respect i go on some of the websites of the itf and uh, i mean i need a computer somebody from you know some expert to come in to show me yeah. how to even find stuff it's really right. it's harder than the pro tours to to deal with yeah. a lot of the stuff information it's not that streamline. So I think simplification is important. And I just think people that aren't tennis parents, I picture myself opening up some of these websites if I'm not a tennis parent, because my daughter wants to get involved. I'm like, this, my head's spinning here a little bit. Right. This is challenging. Right. So how do we get those people get kind of the hook in that they love it? It's simple. It's healthy for their kids. And there's an opportunity and a pathway to pursue. And, and yeah. like I said, there is no, oh, if we just do this, it'll happen. But like I said, those simple themes, mm -hmm. communication, collaboration, integration, simplification, those things coming together are things that can drive a lot of good to happen. And hopefully, um, hopefully I can help. That's what I want to do. I love that. I have to ask you one last question because I know you have to get going, but <laughs> you are on Tennis Channel. You are a commentator and one of my faves. So um, good. Love that. But <laughs> 
What do you think is the reason or the barrier to getting more televised coverage of junior tennis? And how do we make that happen? Because I think seeing top juniors on TV and, you know, really digging into personalities of top juniors and and putting them out there for aspiring players to learn from and to watch and and to say, hey, I want to grow up and be like that um, would be a great way to grow our sport. No, it's it's a great question. I know. Tennis. I didn't. I didn't do any of it, but I know last year Tennis Channel did some some of the college stuff from. And they are right now. Lake Nona, mm-hmm. yeah, and they are now, and 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 they're trying. I think you know, unfortunately, as you and I both know, a lot of it has got to be. I mean, I'm not at this end of it, but it's got to be business stuff, being sure. able to sell advertising. I would think. But one of the great things about Tennis Channel and and my bosses there is they're pretty creative about finding ways to do it. And I know when they participated in helping put together some of the studio necessities down at Lake Nona, a lot of it was mm-hmm. driven by, you know, what you're just saying is we got to get right. more college tennis. We got to get more familiarity for people to see some of these faces because they're tomorrow stars here. Sure. And when, when it trickles down to, like you said, to whatever it is, whether it's Kalamazoo or the 18s or 16s nationals out here, I would get a little leery going too young because I'm mostly fearful for the development of the kids. I, I, yeah. I just get worried about too much exposure for younger kids, you know, True. but, True. but the, but the older juniors that are a little bit, um, more mature that have been around and have been in the right environments, I would be like, we should try to figure out how to do that. So, so what I'm thinking is I think you and I should go have a cup of coffee. We should come up with a game plan and figure out how to do it. I am in all over it. I listen, I was thrilled when tennis channel included our podcast in their, you know, their podcast network, because I think it's important for there to be a parent piece and a junior tennis piece as part of our country's television coverage of 100%. our sport, you know? So mm-hmm. I was thrilled with that and, and I'm all in on the cup of coffee. We can make that happen. So. Perfect. That sounds good. That okay. sounds really good. Well, well look, Paul- it's, it's a, it's a work in progress, Lisa. We all know that. I'm, I'm so excited. Uh, all the people that I've met and started to deal with in SoCal in terms of the sectional stuff have been great. And I thank all of you for being patient with me, getting uh, my education up with all this stuff, but I, I've, I've enjoyed it. And the leadership team has been really good about what they really want to try to do. But right now there isn't a two plus two plus two plus two equals four. It's like mm-hmm. two plus two equals. We're not quite sure yet. Let's get a bunch <laughs> more numbers and figure it out and then try to yeah. prioritize. But those simple themes, I think, can be valuable across the board. For sure. Well, Paul Anacone, thank you so much for having this conversation, bringing your experience and knowledge. And I'm thrilled that you're part of USTA SoCal Junior Development. I think it's just going to make things, um, just take things to the next level here. And I'm excited to be here and watch it happen. So, Melissa, I'm really looking forward to it. And I'm really looking forward to our cup of coffee. And I'm really looking forward to saying thank you again for being so patient with my crazy schedule. Now you know how to get a hold of me. We can do it again when it works for you. Absolutely. Paul, thank you so much. And to my listeners, thank you so much for tuning in. We'll catch you next time on Parenting Aces. I'm Lisa Stone, and you've been listening to the Parenting Aces podcast. For tennis parents, by a tennis parent. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to us and write a review on iTunes. For more information on navigating the junior and college tennis journey, please visit us online at parentingaces.com. Thanks for tuning in and sharing us with your tennis community.